Uh, good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. If you would, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Thank you, Alex, for leading us in worship. Thank the band for bringing us to a place where we can be introspective and be taking a look at our lives as we desire very much to benefit from the time in the Word, the time in worship, and the time in prayer. We do that by uh, making sure our fellowship with the Lord is right. Instructions for the church for teaching, leading, and equipping is our verse-by-verse study through First and Second Timothy and Titus. Guidelines for public worship as we start chapter 2, that really becomes the focus of uh, the Apostle Paul. He's carried along to write this letter to Timothy. Corporate prayer time is first part, and that's where we are now. And it's our habit, we just continue our verse-by-verse study through this first letter to Timothy, Paul's true son in the faith. The letter is prompted by Christ, commanded by him to for Paul to, t- to send it. We saw that in chapter 1. Gives help to Timothy, a pastor of the church at Ephesus, so that he uh, can understand how to deal with trouble. Chapter 1, we saw the source of most of the problems are, that are currently plaguing the church, namely bad teaching and false gospel. They had, of course, given way to then, because of those things, behavior and patterns in the church that were unbiblical and destructive to 1 Timothy 1.5, which we see is the purpose of the church, the goal of instruction, which is we saw love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. So instruction is supposed to come to the church so those things can be developed. So there are ways that you can teach and act in the church that will undermine those things. They'll undermine love from a pure heart, they'll undermine good conscience and sincere faith, and vice versa. There are ways to teach and conduct yourselves that will strengthen those things. So Paul is going to systematically, as he's carried along by the Holy Spirit, address the problems in their teaching, their corporate worship, their conduct in the culture around them, and among other things uh, that we'll take a look at. So let's read our section, if you would. It's our desire to uh, dig in today, and this is dealing with corporate prayer time. Look at verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions, and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. Verse 2, for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Verse 3, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who, verse 4, desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Verse 5, for there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. Stop right there. We have marked a number of principles concerning corporate prayer, which is our habit, and I think the way that the Lord has arranged His Word to be studied. And we've worked our way through on, in these first six verses. If you didn't catch those with us, I would encourage you to go back and pick up on those things. First thing we noted was corporate prayer is to be expansive and expanding. And you can certainly see that in the first two verses. We can see right away uh, an assault perhaps on how we've been praying when we see how we are to pray. Secondly, we saw that corporate prayer has some required elements, entreaties, prayers, petitions, thanksgivings. We just thanked God for His goodness. Thanksgiving, of course, indicates a redeemed heart, a lack of it, uh, the opposite. And we looked at all those definitions and their application in corporate prayer and in our own prayer time. I'd like you to look back there if you missed those. They're very important. And structure our prayer accordingly, as the Lord had intended for it to be in the church. A third principle we noted from our passage is that corporate prayer has some required objects. First, we saw that corporate prayer is very wide, as wide as all men. And so, again, as the church is doing that, many will come under the cover of prayer. 
And then we saw also all men includes kings, verse 2, and all who were in authority. We understood by that just briefly that the Lord has instructed the church to assist in their ruling by prayer. It can only mean that, that very thing. And then we saw in our fourth principle, the beginning of the focus of praying with these elements and for these people. And that focus is expressed in a number of ways. First of all, we saw so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. So for peaceful conditions in which Christians can freely live out uh, their exemplary lives. In other words, the absence of outward disturbances and the absence of turmoil and worry. And since believers then are to be subject to rulers, and we certainly see that in the scriptures, who can make life difficult for everyone, but especially for the church, prayer is necessary then to overrule them. And certainly we see that to be the case here. Uh, and we have a, a perfect opportunity coming up this week. And also praying with focus on how the church appears, both to the Lord and to the church. So we're supposed to pray for a tranquil and quiet life, and then we're supposed to pray for these two things as it concerns the church. Godliness, so as we pray, we want the church to walk in a godly manner. That just means proper reverence towards God, the vertical part of our relationship, what the Word says, and then doing those things. That's godliness. And then dignity is what the world sees, so that's an outward testimony. That's how we live before the world. That's the horizontal part of behavior. So we're to pray corporately for all men and for kings and all in, who are in authority that we can help them by prayer to create a situation where it's tranquil and quiet, where believers can live out their lives as they should, and then in all godliness and dignity, we're supposed to pray for the church that they walk in obedience to the Lord and that they have a good testimony before the world. And then completely praying in this way, corporately, and doing things as we do in obedience to God's commands, we saw just obviously, look at the next part, verse, uh, principle number five, verse three, not only is it good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, which by itself is, is a very, very important, eminently important for those who call on His name. We want to do things that are good and acceptable. Our purpose and our ultimate focus in corporate prayer is revealed to us in God's desire. Look at verse four, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And that was principle number six, praying and living this way helps fulfill the Great Commission. So praying for all men everywhere is prompted because of our desire to, as long with God's desire, to see all men come to salvation. And praying for those in authority come along under the same thing so that we can live a tranquil and quiet life, godliness and dignity. These are accomplished with the salvation of the lost, just obviously. And then we saw principle number seven, where we ended last week, is the urgent call of corporate prayer in this way is that it puts God's work on display. Look at verses five and six. For there is, he said, one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time. So our response to God for what he's done for us is evangelism. And evangelism begins with prayer. You want to get on track in evangelism, they begin to pray for the salvation of the world around you, wider than just your immediate needs. Uh, Hudson Taylor was director of the China Inland Mission. When he was there, he often interviewed candidates for the mission field. On one occasion, he met with a group of applicants to determine their motivations for service. And why do you wish to go as a foreign missionary, he asked one. Response, I want to go because Christ has commanded us to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Another said, I want to go because millions are perishing without Christ. Others gave different answers. Then Hudson Taylor said, all these motives are good and obedient, but however good they are, you're going to fail in times of testing, trials, and tribulations, and possible death 
There's one motivation that will sustain you in all that obedience, and that sustaining and testing will be namely the love of Christ. And there's very much in tune with our current passage and Paul's instruction that we looked at uh, a number of uh, months ago in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. In 5.14, we see, for the love of Christ controls us. Paul says this, the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. So an appreciation of what it costs, the, the substitution of Christ. He died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Now, mark it, that we might no, live no longer for ourselves. It's just so hard to do, isn't it? I mean, obviously we want to respond in obedience. Obviously we understand that the world is perishing and that we need to get the gospel out. But the love of Christ is going to compel us to do that. A missionary in Africa was once asked if he really liked what he was doing. His response was shocking. Do I like this work, he said? No. My wife and I do not like the dirt. We have reasonable refined sensibilities. We don't like crawling into vile huts through goat refuse. Then he said this, but is a man to do nothing for Christ he does not like? God pity him if not. Liking or disliking has nothing to do with it. We have orders to go and we go and love constrains us to do it. This is why we labor and strive. We serve the God who's the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. We love Him and our response to Him is to do what He says. Now back to our text. For there is one God, and that we saw last time, these are God, there are gods from all over the world that are designed by men, but Scripture here says there are not gods at all. There's only one. And Paul ties this in because of our ultimate focus on expansive and expanding prayer time in evangelism. So if there were many gods, then there would be many paths of salvation, and there'd be no need for evangelism because everyone would be on a similar path. And if that sounds foreign to you, it is in evangelicalism, and certainly the, the uh, surveys point that out. The people who sit in churches, every uh, Christian churches, they would say every single Sunday still think it's possible that everybody who worships different things is all going the same way. So the universal need of the gospel is bound up in the oneness of God. And one mediator, he said, also between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. One God, one mediator, one way of salvation, and therefore we pray for the whole world. God wants the whole world saved, and the only way that they can be saved is through that one mediator to that one God. Now look at verse 6. Who gave himself as a ransom. His will, his will, Christ's will, perfectly in tune with the Father, he willingly became our substitute. And so we pray that all men live lives of godliness and dignity. And so if the world takes offense at anything, it should only be right here. If we're living in godliness, so it's a vertical relationship with the Lord that's appropriate and obedient to His Word, and dignity before the world, we're not, we're not being offensive to the world, then the only place they're going to take offense is right here. And it clarifies the gospel, which the Ephesian church had confused. If there's only one God, then He's the only one who can save. If there's only one mediator, He's the only one who can bring you to that saving God. And so we pray in that way. There's only one. So what Paul is saying, look, Timothy, pray for all men because God wants all men to be saved and God is the only one who can do it and Christ is the only mediator through which they can come to that salvation. So pray that way. And this is really an unparalleled expression of the evangelistic model. And it's apart from our, our great commission passages, but we see it very clearly here, do we not? Not to be confused with false teachers who messed us up so badly in Ephesus. And this is to direct us to live a life of prayer and evangelism. And the corporate church prayer time and our public worship is to take on these characteristics. 
and the desire of God who wants all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth is supposed to be our desire. We're called to be lifesavers. And that's exactly what we see in the last part of verse 6. Look there, 1 Timothy 2, 6. They're supposed to take this on. So verse 6 says, Who gave himself a ransom for all, then mark this, the testimony given at the proper time. And this is a principle of corporate prayer number 8. We pray for the clear preaching of the church. That's the understanding. The testimony is just the Greek noun martyrio. That's where we get our word martyr. It simply means that which is to be testified or set forth. And then given at the proper time is just two words in the Greek. It's the adjective idios, which is normally translated one's own. And the noun karios, it's time or season or opportunity. We see basically that same understanding, if you remember in Galatians 6, 9, let us not lose heart in doing good, for here it is, in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. What's that mean? Well, keep on doing good to one another, and at the proper time, for each one, we're going to reap. We're going to see the benefit of that sacrifice as we blessed other people. That's the idea here. Keep on doing good. So we can understand this passage. This, it's a very wonderful passage. We see it this way. The astounding fact that Jesus has given himself as a ransom for all is the very thing which is to be testified by his servants in the time of the gospel. So which is the time we're still in? It started with Jesus' disciples, the apostles of the church, and every believer in every time period, in one's own season. So understand it this way, yours and my life on earth after salvation. That's the proper season. It's arrived. And so the death of Christ as a substitution has bearing as a ransom for the sins of men. And if you've taken part in it, then that's to be the great subject of your teaching and your preaching. It's the main aspect of your testimony. And we say this often, and when we, we baptize, we, we, help, we help form up a testimony. A testimony is not all subjective. It not just has to do with what you did and what happened to you. It has to include this gospel, the clear presentation of how salvation occurs. That subject was above all things, the subject the apostles were to bear testimony of. That's the thing they said were sent out to do. And since it was through Jesus' name, as the crucified, atoning, risen Savior, that they proclaimed the pardon of sin, they proclaimed that to those so that they could repent. And it became their time to do that. And so the appropriate time, the due time, the proper time to bear that testimony and the witness of the results of it in our own life and in others is the time following the event itself. So here's the thing. Have you got untracked yet? If you've come to faith, then the proper time is when? Now. You have to untrack, don't you? I mean, I think it's obvious. It's not even a great commission passage, and yet it's so very clear, is it not? You have to get untracked here. Remember, all the time preceding Christ's atoning work, there was anticipation and longing, like we saw in Job last time, oh, that there was someone who could put their hand on God and on me and be the mediator, right? He was longing for that. And expectation, come thou long expected, Jesus born to set his people free. I mean, this was always the expectation of the prophets. It's always what the prophets talked about that was going to come. But when the reality came, then all who experience it are to participate in the testimony of it so that its merciful design might be experienced by all men, see. And I think that's a very powerful way to put that. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So we are to pray for the church's testimony that it might be effective 
And in doing that, we agree with God's evaluation of men and of the plan to save them because we get on board with it. The desire of God who wants all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth is to be our desire too. If you're having trouble with that, beloved, then again, you back up to the beginning. What do you do? You begin to pray for all men everywhere. You can't pray too widely and for leaders and those who are in authority. That's the beginning of evangelism, beloved. You're not going to have a burden for the lost if you're not even praying for them and they don't even come into your mind, let alone to know that you're supposed to already be on track because this present time is the time you're supposed to be doing it. You filled in 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 place of those who've gone on before. We're called to be lifesavers once our life has been saved. That's the present time. And that makes sense, doesn't it? And I think it's just so wonderful that God equips us to do that and then commissions us to do it. And just in case you're unsure that that's exactly what the understanding of that is, look at the very next verse because Paul confirms it for us. Look at verse 7. For this I was, he said, appointed a preacher and apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So the principle of corporate prayer number nine is we pray this way because it is illustrated in the lives of the apostles. And can I add, we act this way because it is illustrated in the lives of the apostles, particularly here, the apostle Paul. Paul says, for this, what's, what's, what's this? Well, God desires the salvation of all men. For this, because there's only one way of salvation, through the one God who is Savior and the one mediator between man and God, Jesus. For this... Uh, Because all who have experienced this redemption are in their appointed time to discharge it. For this, this is why I'm ordained as a preacher and an apostle. In other words, he's saying, I'm just doing what everyone else is supposed to do too. When the good news comes to you, you then become a bearer in the proper time of that good news for someone else. And yet the church sits. Churches are all around the world just sitting. They'll go out and they'll live in the community. They'll go out and they'll work. Never a word. And they've missed completely the idea and the understanding that you were made for this and that when you were made new, you became a lifesaver and you have to carry it. And yet we sit. And you could probably think of people you interact with every single day and you've never spoken the good news to them, not a single time. Listen, beloved, that is unacceptable. And it certainly is not in line with what we see here. It's very basic to the understanding of new life. That it's pleasing to the Lord that all men come to salvation. That should be pleasing to us too. And then we become, at the proper time, a lifesaver too. So for this, God desires the salvation of all men. So this is what I'm doing. Paul just says, listen, I'm just taking up my part because the good news has come to me. And the fact that God chose Paul uh, to preach the gospel to the Gentiles and his willingness to do it, mark it, and we see this all the time in the writings of Paul, Become the illustration of the fact that God desires to reach all people and proof that the redeemed have an obligation to pray for and reach out to everyone. Paul is the example here in this passage, and we've seen that over and over again. Follow me as I follow Christ, and then we get the examples of what it's supposed to look like. So Paul says, at the proper time, and just in case you were unsure what that means, that's why I'm here for this. This is the reason I'm here. According to verses 1 and 2, the church is to pray for all people. According to verse 4, it's God's desire that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. 
According to verse 6, it's our time to proclaim the gospel to all people. According to verse 7, it's, an, it's illustrated in Paul's life. So the universal concern of the church, illustrated by Paul, arises from the universal concern of God. And as John Stott so well, says so well, he says this, quote, It is because there is one God and one mediator that all people must be included in the church's prayers and proclamation. God's desire and Christ's death concern all people. Therefore, the church's duty concerns all people too, reaching out to them both in earnest prayer and in urgent witness because it's the proper time now. And I think that's really affirmed by the language that's used here. When Paul says, I was appointed, aorist passive indicative, Paul was caused to be or made to be. And again, I know you can see this, like we saw in the other things we illustrated 1 Timothy 1, 11 and 12, he said, he entrusted me, he strengthened me, he put me into service. Remember 1 Timothy 1, 16, he says, yet for this reason I found mercy so that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. So in other words, if God could save Paul, he can save everyone, and Paul's an example for those who would believe, and we understand our current passage in the same light. These things came to be at salvation. So when you think about errors, you're just thinking about a snapshot, not a specific time, but in general, it occurred at salvation, and all these things became to be part of what Paul was. He entrusted, he strengthened, he put me into service. Paul's the example of how that works. Spiritual gifts come and start at that time. The Lord empowers you to do that. The Holy Spirit is there. We see the same thing here. For this reason, I was appointed a preacher. See, it happened when he came to faith. The Lord called him into ministry. We know his whole story, don't we? These came these came, things came to be at salvation. A preacher, that's the noun K-Rocks, that's the word used in the New Testament for a herald or a messenger or vested with public authority. The idea that they have a message from a, from a military commander or from a magistrate and they go out and say it. So that describes what we're supposed to do. We're, we're, we're preachers, all of us. An apostle, a similar word, a messenger, it came to indicate the official office of an apostle, which applied only to a select group of people, which God used to establish the New Testament church. The office did not continue after their death, and we have covered that topic several times. You can go back and catch up on that if you need to. And then a teacher, the daskalos, uh, preeminence really used to refer to Jesus of himself as somebody who showed men the way of salvation, but in the church certainly a spiritual gift for those who undertake the work of teaching and undertake the work of salvation uh, and proclamation, and they're going to disciple a teacher in faith and truth, and that meshes perfectly with the Great Commission. Think about the Great Commission now, Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go therefore and make disciples. Who's supposed to do that? Who's he speaking to? Only just a select group of people who seem to have that gift or those who are excited about it? No. Everyone, right? That now is the proper time. You, you've come to faith. Now it's your time to carry the load. Go and make disciples of the nations. That's the faith part. And baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. That's the truth part, right? So you're going and, and giving out the gospel. And then what? You're making sure they understand what it looks like to walk with the Lord. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So you and I then are heralds of the good news. You and I are witnesses of the testimony, and it's our time to give it. And you and I are teachers in that we disciple those we lead to faith. And that's how it lines up with Paul's illustration. And I put a little circle with a slash to it. You're not an apostle, and you won't ever be one. 
And that's a select group of people, and they didn't continue. But the rest of them belong to you. And that language, beloved, is inescapable, okay? There is no wiggle room here. If you have been the recipient of the good news and you've been brought to life, then you now, it's now your time to make sure other people hear it. It's our responsibility to pray for all men and leaders and all who are in authority that they may come to salvation because that's God's will, that they be redeemed and that we are the vehicles through which the message comes. There's only one God and only one way to God through Jesus, and people can't know this. They can't know this apart from special revelation, so they have to be told. The world is not going to figure this out on their own. The gospel message has to go out, and it's our turn to do it because we now have a testimony, and we're going to catch the burden for it when we start praying very widely and broadly for our world, and we were, like Paul, appointed to be a herald and a teacher and a witness. So very clear, very clear language. And so 1 Timothy 3.15, again, we bring this to bear. This is how we conduct ourselves in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. How are we supposed to act in the church? Well, there you go. Now, let's look at verse 8. And this is a transitional part of of uh, this letter. We're going to move into some other things. It all comes under corporate worship, guidelines for corporate worship, uh, but there are a number of things that, he, that we're going to go over ne- in next week's section. But the part we need for today is in the second, is the second part, and the passage is tied to our first seven verses by the word therefore. So we understand that it's connected. So because we understand what we just read, and then we're going to move into this next section. So look at verse 8. It says, therefore, I want the men in every place to pray. So it's just, again, a reference to what he just got through saying. This is corporate prayer, though. It's corporate worship. Men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands. That's the part we're going to look at right now. Without wrath and dissension. And that is the principle of corporate prayer number 10. Men who pray corporately are to be those who are living outwardly and inwardly holy lives. Now, I want to break this down a little bit because it's not obvious exactly, uh, it doesn't seem to be obvious exactly what's going on here. Because it's a combined instruction for corporate worship, it can be confusing. But we're going to start on the guidelines for worship concerning men and women next week, Lord willing. So there's a lot here that needs addressing. But these are really qualifications, and I think you can see that. Uh, Men are going to pray, and they have to be men who lift up holy hands without wrath or dissension. It's supposed to be brought to bear in prayer. So what's it mean, lifting up holy hands? Does it mean that everyone has them and you just need to put them up in the air when the errant worship leader tells you to do that? Is that it? No, that's not it. In fact, if you look out on a hundred pairs of hands lifted up, would you even know which ones were holy? Of course not. What do holy hands actually look like? Uh, So Paul's emphasis here is not on the physical hands necessarily, okay? But as a footnote, I would say that posture of prayer, of lifting up hands, is a biblical one. Uh, When the Jews prayed, do you know how they did it? Well, they didn't close their eyes and everybody bowed their head. Not that that's a bad thing. I mean, you certainly can do that in the church. But that's not how the Jews did it. I mean, when the Jews prayed, they lifted up their hands, palms up to the Lord. That's how they prayed. 
And in case you're unclear about that, 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 22, I just read this in my own quiet time not too long ago. Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel. This is after the temple is built and they're dedicating to it. And what does he do? He spreads out his hands towards heaven and then he gets ready and he prays. It's a very long prayer there, very wonderful. Nehemiah 8, verse 6, it says, Ezra opened the word of God and prayed while the people held up their hands and said, Amen. In Psalm chapter 63, verse 4, So I'll bless you as long as I live, the psalmist said, I will lift up my hands to your name. So you're blessing God by you're addressing him, right? You're praying and you're lifting up hands to your name. So I think maybe the frozen chosen are perhaps getting a little uncomfortable right now, right? That's where I keep my hands. And I'm not saying that you need to lift up your hands. I just want to make sure that you understand that keeping your hands down is not necessarily a biblical posture, okay? Psalm 141 verse 2, may my prayer be counted as incense before you, the lifting of my hands as the evening offering. So again, in parallel there, my prayers are incense. I'm lifting up my hands while I do that. You see? Now, obviously, there's a way that that can be done that's appropriate. Otherwise, we wouldn't see it. But there's also a way to do it that's inappropriate, which is why Paul's addressing it, right? When Paul has, says, listen, if you're going to pray, you're going to be lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension, which means that might not be the case in the church now, but it needs to be the case. And we see the same illustration in the Old Testament. The Isaiah the prophet writes this. He says in Isaiah 1.15, so when you spread out your hands in prayer, again, you're spreading out your hands in prayer, palms up towards the Lord. What does the Lord say? I'll hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply your prayers, I'll not listen. Why? Your hands are covered with blood. Now, this is going to connect us to our previous passage. Lots of illustrations in, in that posture. Of course, here in Isaiah, we catch the meaning. Were the hands they were right then, physically lifting up to the Lord to pray, actually physically covered with blood? No, they weren't. Very unlikely, because they had a way to wash their hands and let it drip off their elbows, and they were gonna, their hands probably had nothing on them, in their own view. However, the Lord looked at their hands completely differently. The point here is, it's not that when you pray, you've got to have your hands in the air, although that's a biblical prayer model. The point here is the one who prays must have holy hands. See? So what's that mean? Well, the hands are a symbol of the activities of life, aren't there? There's very few things that you're going to do in life that don't involve doing them with your hands. And so the point is, whoever prays ought to be the kind of person who is what? Living a holy life. So in corporate prayer... You've got people who are going to lead corporately, and they need to be the kind of people with a pattern of holy living. That's the point. And that's why Isaiah goes on to say, and I think you'll find this very interesting, in verse 16, he says this, wash yourselves. He goes, you can multiply your prayers all you want. Your hands are covered with blood. In other words, the things that you're doing betray the God you say you worship. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. And then he gives them some direction. What needs to happen to be qualified to lift up hands in prayer? Remove the evil of, the de of your deeds from my sight. In other words, cease to do evil. Don't keep doing evil and then come into the church and lift up hands and I'm praising the Lord. You know what? The Lord says the same thing now. We come, you see churches across the country, you know, Tens of thousands of people. I'm not saying that they're all lifting up unholy hands. I'm just thinking, are they even thinking through that whole process? I doubt it. 
Because there's a lot of errant teaching going on, and I hear a lot of this, lift up your holy hands. Well, that's going to require some evaluation, isn't it? And maybe some asking for forgiveness before you do that. Much like coming to prayer. Our Father who's in heaven, your name is holy. Let your kingdom come and your will be done. It's an attitude of submission. I understand that in, from a fellowship perspective, I've betrayed the God that I say I love. So that whole time of musical worship at the beginning of the service is a great time to look at those words and say, as you see those confessions, you do them too. See, that's what I do. Standing right there. I'm reading those words. I'm thinking, does that describe me? If it doesn't describe me, then if we confess our sins, he's what? He's faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Remove the evil from your, my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Right? Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. The renewing of your mind. Change those patterns of behavior. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. On and on. So clean hands or holy hands from our passage is the sense of pure living. The word has, for holy here is not hagios. It's not set apart. The word for holy here is, is um, hosios. Unpolluted. Unstained. So when men are praying corporately, the instruction here for men is that for these things we've studied, they must be the kind of men who live a pattern of life unstained by the world. That's the outer living. That's what's visible. And then it says, not just holy hands, without wrath and dissension. And so the idea here is, is that that's the inner qualifications. These guys are not hypocrites. They are pure-hearted. The idea there is this. It, it is the sincere faith and a clear conscience we saw earlier. The inner attitude is one of submission with a pure heart. See, it's, it's, it's easy to do acts of godliness in front of people. It's called legalism. We do it so people will know that we're Christians instead of doing it because we just love obedience and we don't care what other people think about it. You see, there's a huge difference there, but very hard to, de to determine on the outside. So Paul makes it clear, not only does it a pattern of holy living, but also on the inside. Why are you doing what you're doing? And this is all through the scripture. I'm, it's not this, I'm doing this, but I really don't want to. It's, it's not, um, I wish other people would do something else with me around here, not just let me do the whole thing. So anger is a bad attitude about something or someone. And dissensions, dialogismos, is where we get our word dialogue. This is really cool. Um, it's translated thought or reasoning or imagination. So the idea is self-talk. So men who are going to pray and lift up holy hands, which is a pattern of life of holiness, are also going to be avoiding the whole self-talk that comes along with self-righteousness, uh, criticism, those things that are going on inside, see? So it's not only an outward evaluation or qualification, but it's an inward one, isn't it? It's like Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3, we're going to see he who desires the office of elder desires a good thing. There's an outward desire that you want to be an overseer, and then there's a desire on the inside which conforms to what the Lord expects of those who lead the church. And then he goes on and gives a big list. So you can self-evaluate. Two things that are going on here. So an inner attitude is submission with a pure heart. It's translated thought, reasoning, pure living, pure heart. That's to be the pattern of life market for those who pray in the corporate church setting. And we're going to see some other 
uh, instructions for corporate worship next time. But that gets us to the close of prayer time. And we're going to move into the activities of males and females inside the church. Now, we're getting ready to close and, and um, we're going to pray. But I think that you would agree that these eight verses here at the beginning of Guidelines for Public Worship are packed pretty full. The instructions just by themselves for prayer time uh, early on and the expansive and expanding prayer time are convicting, aren't they not? And so, how do we measure up? That's the question we have to ask, isn't it? When we start looking at instructions for corporate worship, how people are to behave inside the church, then we have to ask, how am I doing? That's precisely why it's given. And this is where the purpose of the church begins in our prayer life, beloved. Especially as we come together corporately. We pray corporately for the lost and then get untracked and begin to witness because it's our time. See. I'd like you to bow with me in prayer if you would as we, as we uh, kind of confirm these things in our own heart. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for you and for the bridge between your holiness and our sinfulness, Jesus. And it's your will we want to see done. That's why we read your word. That's why we study what it says. Not so we can just be smart about what the Bible says and, what the, and the language, but so we can know how we're supposed to obey because it's your will we want done. And we want to be involved with your kingdom. And Father, we thank you for what your word said to us today. And we know it's alive and it's sharp and we're blessed to have it. And we know what you want. That's not even a question. You've told us very clearly what you want. And as we work our way through this letter, you're going to say very clearly other things that you expect in corporate worship. So Father, we ask even right now, as we bring, as we bring entreaties to you, that um, by the strength of your Holy Spirit in our lives, I pray that you'll remind us to be obedient to what you've asked. We want to be conformed to your image. We desire to be a church that's doing what you say. It's not even an option to just kind of freelance this and do however, whatever we want. What, how ridiculous would it be? And yet we, we perhaps fall into that, and perhaps we have fallen into that in our own prayer life, privately. And so, Father, I pray that you could begin to conform us. And we know that as we do these things that you say in more and more faithfulness, we'll begin to see the outcomes that you intend with our lives here. The conversion of the lost, unsaved that we've known and haven't spoken to, perhaps coming to faith, growing the church in the way that's the most important and the way that you've prescribed for it to grow, to conversions. And so, Father, we know we'll see those outcomes as we begin to pray that way and then following our prayer time in our due time when we've come to faith, we've, our life has been saved, then we become lifesavers. And, Father, we pray for the lost everywhere, as, as Alex did, as he prayed for those who were in authority and leaders. He prayed for that this morning. We pray again for uh, those who are over us. We get a great opportunity to to vote and a responsibility to do that this week, to vote for people who, uh, who espouse those things that you say are important. I pray that that will be important to us. And I pray for our country that, that tens of millions around our country will also vote in that way and will also pray for the salvation of those currently over us in leadership. 
that in their inner circles where there are no doubt born-again Christians who have not understood it is their time to begin to carry the load of the gospel. Help them to begin by praying for those who are over them, by their, for their bosses and for their colleagues, and then begin with that prayer to begin to witness. And us, Father, we, we have people in our inner circles, people we interact with every day. We've never seen, not a single time have we given the gospel to them. How in the world can we possibly come then later before you and not be embarrassed that we didn't do what we were supposed to do? So it's our desire very much to, to come in line in this way. And Father, we pray for this election that it will lead to a time of tranquility and quietness that we can do the work of the church uninhibited and that this church will walk in godliness and dignity aligned with what your word says faithfully each day and in dignity before the world, not as a hypocrite, not giving a a bad example, a bad testimony. Let Christianity be the best word for Christianity, for Berean. How we act. And Father, we pray, these are on our hearts now, our, our team that's on their way to Brazil or in Brazilia now and, and waiting for their flight to Bovista. Lord, we pray for their safety and we pray for their transformation. We pray for everyone who's gone on these trips, that their eyes will be opened to the real meaning for life, the real purpose, understand in a, a much deeper way the burden for the lost. So I pray you do that. Do that work in the current team, the one that just came back as well, Father, that they might understand your, your demand for them, that they be soul winners, that give their life for those things that, that last. And Father, I pray for that little village and ones that surround it, that this, this missionary couple that we've sent will be effective in spreading the gospel, to continue to encourage their hearts and strengthen them as they go through many of these steps that don't seem to be getting them in the direction they want to go. Lord, I pray that you encourage them. I pray the witness will already have started with Eli and Jess and the kids and the teams that are around there for the village, that you might provide a soul harvest there of all those little souls we saw in pictures and, and the adults captured by animism and, and uh, demonism. And Lord, that you pray, we pray that they'll be released uh, because they've healed the gospel, the good news, and become missionaries themselves. All these things, Father, are on our hearts, certainly, and we're so thankful that you provide so much for us. We look around at our life, and we are so grateful for, uh, for our health, for the things that you provide for us, the, the comforts and, and the joys of family and home. Lord, we, we are gra- very grateful, and, and grateful that we can be a part of sending and, and that you provided our, for our needs so we can be a part of the financial part of sending uh, missionaries out. Lord, we're thankful. We want to be thankful people. Help us to remember to be thankful this week as we seek you in prayer. And Father, as we do ministry this week, I pray to encourage the staff as they do it, encourage the volunteers, those uh, who are being ministered to will be, will be brought to maturity. Even in Awana, we'll see little ones come to faith, so go through the start zone and grow. And uh, Lord, we're so grateful that that's part of what's going on for the Bible studies that are going on tonight and those that will happen on Wednesday. Help your word to be very clear and help people to understand what they what it means, and then submit their lives to you uh, for salvation, repent, and then come to a knowledge of what you've required of us and do it. So we pray this in the name of your Son, knowing that it's your kingdom that we want to be involved with, and this is how you say to do it, so this is what we want to do. We pray all this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.